unique podcast taking you behind the badge. Unbelievable stories exploring the day in the life of a first responder. 911 is made possible by Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates, fighting for those that have been denied disability, life, long-term care, and health benefits nationwide. Now, here's your host, DeMarlin Dean. Welcome to 911, the world's greatest First responder show is like what I like to call it. Best cop show, best firefighter show, best EMT podcast out there in the world. Thank you so much for joining us. And today, my guest is Bridget Truxillo. Did I pronounce that correctly? Truxillo? You got it. You did it right. right. Good job. And this young lady, she has done some really cool things. Uh, she was an officer for four and a half years, and two and a half of those years, she was on the SWAT team. And so, you know, when we have a female that's on the SWAT team, you know, that means one thing. She is bad. But now she actually is in law enforcement. And she actually says being on the SWAT team kind of drove her into uh, law. I mean, not law enforcement, but law school. She's a lawyer. So uh, being mm-hmm. on the SWAT team kind of dictated that. So I want to be, um, I'm really interested in hearing how that happened and hear some stories about that. But also this lady worked undercover. And um, those of you that have been listening for a while know that I did that for a short period of time, but she did it for a while. And wow, I just want to hear some of those stories about a female officer being undercover. I'm sure there were some scary situations there. So Bridget, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thank you. Um, I'm happy to be here. It's fun. Good. Well, I uh, kind of gave a synopsis of uh, a little bit of what you're doing, but I want, I like for my guests to introduce themselves because I may miss some things that are important to you. So tell us what you think we should know about Bridget Truxillo. Well, we talked about this earlier. I'm a mom. Uh, I have three kids. I, there are two girls that are 11 and 10, and I have a son that's five. So all the fun activities and trying to figure out homework and tests. And that's in fact, that's what they're doing downstairs right now. They're under strict instructions to get some homework done. (laughs) Um, So that's an important role. As you know, you have kids and I am a business owner. So I have a business, I have two businesses, protective wellness that provides wellness training for law enforcement and a law firm that is transitioning to the name of the uh, lady law shield. So I, cause I think that encompasses, I'm a lady. I was in the law and shield because it's kind of, you know, encompasses the fact that I was in law enforcement because my practice specializes in representing law enforcement on specific matters. Um, and yes, I was a deputy sheriff for four and a half years. I started off in patrol and quickly went into undercover narcotics. So I joke and say that I used to buy crack for a living, but I did <laughs> buy a lot of crack. Um, and then shortly after I got on the narcotics unit, I made the SWAT team. Well, I tried out for the SWAT team and it took them a little while to put me on, which there's stories with that. But, um, and before that I went to university of Florida for college. So go Gators. I'm a proud member of the Gator nation. I love college Florida football, although it can be very aggravating. Especially and, when you get your butts handed to you about Tennessee. Go balls. <laughs> okay. Well, we don't really need to talk about that because I went to school in the nineties and I will gladly date myself when we used to run out the score on everybody. And I miss those days. Oh yeah. But yes. I know those are good, but we play LSU this weekend and my husband went to LSU. So it's a lose, lose family set that's football gonna, day, but that's going to be an interesting um, day in your household. 
Yeah, and I'm from Louisiana, so I'm kind of from the South. Really, I moved around a lot, but born and born and then finished school in, in Louisiana. That's where my parents are from. So that's me from birth to now. Well, gosh, <laughs> you, 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 I can tell already that you're an overachiever. For, uh, overachiever, first of all. I mean, you've done some pretty amazing things in a short amount of time. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank so you. So let's back up to why law enforcement to begin with. You know, I, I, and I do get this question and I feel like I, and I, of course I wanted to help. I am a firm believer in right and wrong, black and white. Um, and I certainly learned in the narcotics unit, there's a lot of gray in there um, in terms of somebody commits a crime because they have drugs and then that's black and white. Is it wrong? Yes. But then you want to use that person to try and take more drugs off the street. So then that person might not, you know, they can work off their charge, so to speak by sort of hopefully flipping or giving this to their dealer, that kind of stuff. But I do very, and still today, believe strongly in right and wrong. And of course, I teach that to my kids and I think it's important. Um, And I was coming up at the end of University of Florida and my degree is in environmental horticulture. And there's a long (laughs) story about why that happened. But I realized I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. And I was into fitness. I wanted a job that required me to be fit. I I thought it would be nice to have a job that required that since I wanted to do it anyway. And law enforcement seemed it. I joke around, and I've said this a lot, that I I watched G.I. Jane, the movie with Demi Moore, and I thought it was cool, so I decided I could do that, which is no disrespect to all the Navy SEALs out there because that's a legit job. Um, yes. And training. And, you know, so we all know that. Um, but I just I just thought and nobody in my family had ever been in law enforcement before. So my dad certainly thought I was nuts. Um, but I went in and I, I mean, I'm, at the very beginning, I loved it. Um, but like most cops, what you do in that job starts to change who you are. And um, that's ultimately why I have my business now protective wellness. Cause even though I left, I knew that someday I'd want to come back and help somehow. I just didn't know how that would look. I didn't know what that would look like. Um, but I knew that the job was changing me and I didn't know how to handle that. Um, mm-hmm. but we can dive into that later. Well, I'll ask you now what, because that does happen a lot. You have, you have an idea of what law enforcement looks like and what you can do mm-hmm. and how you can help save the world is what I always like to say. I went mm-hmm. in thinking I could change mm-hmm. the world and quickly found out that I really couldn't. Um, but mm-hmm. I can still change my world as best as I could. Mm-hmm. What was your biggest mm-hmm. surprise? My biggest surprise, I remember distinctly being in my captain's office one time because I was on the narcotics unit and the SWAT team. There was a lot of overlap with the people on SWAT. They were on narcotics and and I was the only female on SWAT team. And for a little while, a lot of the time I was the only female on the narcotics unit. For a little while, I did have another female and that was great. And then she left me to go to Secret Service. Um, and so there was a lot of challenges in that. And and so that was a lot harder than I thought it would be. I mean, okay, so I, I knew that being the only female on SWAT would be hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've never had a female. I don't. They have not had one since. Um, the regime has, has changed and continues to change. So maybe they'll do it again someday, but the regime that was there before was not going to have one. Um, and so if you come, if you coupling that with, I didn't expect to run into a wall, so to speak, as much as I did in, in terms of trying to prove that I could do the job and realizing that my efforts didn't matter. And then coupling that with, you always have to be on guard that something bad could happen to you. And so you have to assume that somebody, whoever you're dealing with could come at you or want to attack you or want to hurt you. And yet I don't, I was struggling with, I didn't want to live a life where I had to assume everybody was bad. Mm -hmm. And I knew that was going to change me. I felt it changing me and I did not know how to balance that. And, and that's a lot of what I do now with my business is, 
providing ideas and, and, and look, I have a course, it's a seven step course where you go through and you figure out, I help you figure out what that looks like for you. I'm not telling you, here's a canned course, go do these things and you will be happier. No, because what makes me happy doesn't make you happy. Right. So way back then, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, I'll go for a run and I'll feel better. But that wasn't enough. And you know, and, and you hear people talk about it is that you go into it eyes wide open thinking, oh, but it won't happen to me. Right. And then it does. And at some point you realize it is happening to you, whether it's anger problems or, you know, drinking too much, you just, it's just, you, t- you realize you're unraveling in some way. And so, um, that's one of the, that was a surprise for me as I didn't realize, first of all, oh, it really does happen to everybody. I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm not excluded. And then not knowing how to balance it and then not knowing who to turn to for it. I did have a very supportive captain, but there was only so much he could do because he couldn't be with me every second of every day. And, you know, I was a big girl. I was in SWAT, whatever. I can handle it. Right. But ultimately, I I just didn't know it's the life I wanted to lead. And that was hard. That was really, really hard to, yeah. to leave. And especially it seems like since you worked what, what appears to be really hard and, and, and progressed mm-hmm. really quickly, were you in a small mm-hmm. department or a pretty big department? Yes. I would say small because I live in Houston and Houston HPD is huge and the sheriff's office has, you know, bigger territory, but just as many officers as it's so true that sheriff's office and constable because Texas has this unique position called constable. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there's a lot of law enforcement around here. So compared to that, my agency, I think deputies was around 250, but they always they also have the jail. And so I don't know how many more was that, but I think at the time it was 250 to 275 deputies. So I I wouldn't call that super small. I talk with a lot of cops. There are departments that are seven or 10 or 12 total, including the chief. Right, Um, right. So yeah, I, that's, I guess that's I'd say that, that it's mid-size. Yeah, yeah. I well, I, I guess my point being, if you've got, you know, 200, 250 officers and you in a, usually you don't rise through the ranks that quickly, you know, Mm-mm. right out of the gate, almost being in narcotics. That's usually something that you have to work hard and get there and, and mm-hmm. earn, obviously. And then certainly SWAT, you know, you have to be on the street for a while before you can even usually attempt to get on the SWAT team. And the fact that mm-hmm. you achieved both of those is pretty significant. And then you walked away from it because of, you know, the mm-hmm. things that you experienced doing that. What was your position? Um, if you had a specific position on the SWAT team? Um, I wanted to be on the entry team. Okay. And I was what I call the van, the, uh, we had a, the bread van. So, you know, the, they have them sometimes like the UPS truck that has the little yeah. sliding glass Box door truck. on the side. Mm-hmm. Yes, we had a box truck that we would bring our supplies in. So all the extra flashbangs and ammo and the, sh- the ballistic shields they use, all that was in our what I call the bread van. And I got to drive that. Um, one time I got to be on the entry team, which meant that I was in the ballistic vehicle. And it was one of the guys on the narcotics unit. So we would have three captains sort of on the SWAT. We did have three captains on the SWAT team. And then one of those captains was also on narcotics with me. So we spent even more time together. And... He put me on an entry team. It was his, you know, they, they got to decide who was going to play what role. And you have, so you have the ballistic shields. A lot of times you have two if you can. And then there's somebody right behind them that will throw the bass flashbang out. You know, because the point of that is to stun people so you can hopefully get just a couple seconds of, because you do knock. Very rarely do you get the no-knock warrants. And so you knock and then you go in. So they know you're there, but you still want to be able to have some kind of advantage. So I wanted to be on the entry. And then once you throw the flashbang, you help clear rooms. And I trained with them just as much 
I did just as much training as they did. Mm-hmm. And I found out later after I left the sheriff's office that he got my friend on the, well, the guy on the narcotics unit with me, the team captain on SWAT, they berated him after that. And nobody ever put me on another entry team. So I, I got to drive the bread man. That's what okay. I did. Although so, you- I did compete in lots of, we competed in a SWAT, international SWAT competition in Florida. Uh, SWAT roundup. Um, they have them in different states. Like I just saw they have one in Texas recently, but it's an amazing competition. There's teams from around the world. I mean, they, we had Sarajevo there. There were teams from across the country, LA, Dallas, these full, full time. I mean, jacked up dudes, SWAT teams. And I was on our SWAT team. So I had to compete against my own guys to make the comp- competition team. And then I got a spot and then we went to the actual competition and we placed in the top 20 or better every time out of 75 or more teams. So, you know, athletically, physically, talent wise, I could do it. We did all the same training. I clear the same rooms. I can clear a gun better or faster than you. I mean, but I was the bread bed. I was the bread van girl, the bread truck girl. So that had to feel like a bit of a slight. Oh yeah. And at first I thought it's okay. I'm the rookie or I'll keep it in the FNG and I, you know, you can, I won't use the words, but, um, okay. I can put my time in. I got to put my time in, but then, you know, two years go by and there's guys that come in after me and they get to be on an entry team and like, "Mm, okay, well, all right, well that guy has military experience. Okay. But then it just kept happening. And finally it's like, this sucks. And, um, yes, it, it really, towards the end, I, I, it got really hard. And then there was a lot of other things happening around that to the point where my captain even started noticing things was happening and called me into his office and said, is there anything you would like to tell me about? And I said, no. And in hindsight, this is my advice I give to people. Don't do that. If you're given, if you're given the opportunity to share how things are going for you, do it in the best and most, um, what's the right word? I mean, don't just go in there and be an a-hole. Professional. Start. Yeah, be professional about it, but share your experiences, you know, and, and not we everybody, all the people in law enforcement know it's not very often you have somebody in your ranks that will come to you and say, how's it going? Is there anything I can do for you? Mm-hmm. And I was afraid that I would be remembered as like, quote unquote, that girl. I wanted to be remembered for my value, my operating skills, not because I shared how hard it was. And what I learned at the in the end is I should have just shared it. So it sounds like you had some some unwarranted, possibly um, difficulties. You know, they were making it harder than Mm -hmm. it needed to be doing things. And your captain Mm -hmm. gave you an opportunity to to share. But you didn't want to be, quote, Mm -hmm. the snitch. Didn't want to tell. Yep. Um, Yep. And. Um, but in, in, in the end, I think, as I was reading through your notes, they, they you know, they were calling you those things anyway, even though you you did. Oh, yeah. 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 They totally and literally called me a snitch behind my back because yeah. I went to my captain, my SWAT team commander and finally just said, look, I don't want better treatment. I just want equal treatment. And he ended up going because there was an incident that happened where if I had done that, this, like my one of my sergeants who did not, it was he, he and I butted heads mostly. I feel like he butted against my head and I just kept saying, quit it. Just leave me alone, quit it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, he did something where if I had done that, I would have gotten like written up 500 mountain climbers probation for six months, you know, or whatever. And I just said, look, this is not fair. I mean, I don't like to use the word fair. Um, I, you know, just, just that's equal. You know, if you're going to do it to me, do it to them. Or if you're not going to do it to them, don't do it to me and just do this the same. And then my 
the guy running the SWAT team, who was also over, over all of narcotics, um, went and told the team that I was trying to snitch on one of my teammates. And even though I never told him who it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that was hard, hard. This was after I'd competed on SWAT roundup twice with them, trained for months for SWAT roundup with them. And, and that is something that happens in law enforcement in some way or another, it happens in law enforcement and, and really all jobs. Cause that I learned in my first, the first law firm I worked for literally, I remember walking into my office and reading an email and sitting with him and I like literally like, stopped in my tracks and thinking, Oh my gosh, this crap happens everywhere. And mm-hmm. I just think that it, it can feel heightened when you're in a job like law enforcement because of all the extra stress that you're under just in, in, in doing the job. So, right. yeah, it was hard. I bet. Um, but in all of that, you still managed to, at least with me, have a sense of humor because you were very um, a creative undercover um, officer. Tell me about the time where um, you the one person that you were you're trying to buy from didn't have drugs and you uh, you asked for a referral. I tell my sales reps all the time, ask for referrals. You took that advice. Well, I did, but my team ribbed me for that so much because, you know, we're on a, I'm the undercover part. And the way we would do that is like certain days you have what's called a buy bus. So you have buy walks where you're trying to get a search warrant at a house or a location or something. And in my jurisdiction, we had to have three buys before we could get a search warrant. Those are called buy walks. And then you have buy busts where I go in and buy the crack rock. And then on my listening device, I'd say, Hey, looks good. Or you know, hey, see you next time or whatever the buzzword was. And then that meant I would drive off and then all the uniform guys would come in behind me and swoop in, arrest everybody. There'd be chases. And, you know, it was always like, <laughs> oh, the sheriff's office arrested 12 people today and blah, blah, blah. And so we had been driving around, just nothing was happening. And I, I just said, I, I, my captain, my lieutenant, I came back and he said, so you didn't get anything. I said, no. And he says, did you really just ask a drug dealer if he could, if you could refer you to someone else? <laughs> I said that. It's like, so could you just refer me to somebody else who might be selling right now? And the guy just looked at me and turned his back and walked off. Like, the good news <laughs> is that they never want to believe that a female is a cop. They always yeah. want to assume the guys are cops, but they never really want to believe it's a female. I did not, however, buy from that guy that day. I never saw him again. So apparently <laughs> he got the, the, his hinky meter went off a little bit. <laughs> you actually, t- tell me you didn't use the word refer you actually said can oh, I, you refer no, me i did i did i said can you refer me to someone else i probably said something super dirty can you refer me to someone else in the neighborhood it sounds that very dirty crack rock it is oh, man. it totally is and i get back he's like did you really just say i was like i did not he's like no you did and it's recorded Oh so, man! Yeah. I thought you'd at least say you know anybody else that could hook me up or something like that. But no, you yeah, ha- you really did ask for a referral. I, say, I really <laughs> did say, can you refer me to the next drug dealer? I didn't really say drug dealer, but I was like I practically said, can you refer me to the next drug dealer? But I did use the word refer, and he didn't go for it. So we changed neighborhoods after that. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. You also uh, had a had a time or two where uh, you just got basically they just stole from you. Oh God, that was, you know, I feel like it was on the same day. <laughs> it was a bad day for you. The guy's like, I'll be right back. I was like, sure. And I gave him my 20 bucks and oh, he didn't come back. 
And another time where my lieutenant was like, seriously, what were you thinking? Like, I don't know. And, you know, it was probably towards the end of the night and we'd probably already arrested like seven or eight people. You know, once you bust somebody in one neighborhood, you have to quickly go to the next neighborhood and we're in the county. So you got to go around, you got to go somewhere else because word gets out quick. So yeah, I really don't remember. I remember the guy, I I can't remember if it was really dark. It wasn't light outside. We don't usually do those. We did do sometimes in broad daylight. So I think that was like an afternoon and you know, it doesn't really start heating up until later in the day. So yeah, I gave guy 20 bucks. He said, he'd be right back. And <laughs> he didn't, he didn't come back. Yeah. But I didn't do that again. Just so you know, I only did that once. I think my last undercover buy that I made it wasn't, uh, I was buying ounces of cocaine at a time. So I wasn't buying crack. Mm. I was just buying powder cocaine. And mm-hmm. the last buy that I, that I did before I went into the Academy, cause I did all this before everyone went to the Academy. It was, I, we were waiting doing mm. while the Academy was, was, um, waiting to start, oh, wow. but it was, it was, it was flour or something. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't mm-hmm. cocaine. So, you know, I, he, he got a lot more than $20 from me that time, of course, because yeah. I did pay him. However, people don't always realize that it doesn't matter. The charge is the same. He right. still got arrested and right. he still did the time. So, <laughs> Right. That's the intent. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yes, absolutely. And you actually had a lady also. Tell me about the lady that was thankful for um, meth. Oh, gosh. Yes. So, when, so, you know, when you go to a store, you're limited on how much like Sudafed and things you can buy. And that's because there are precursors to making methamphetamine um, in those drugs. So even if you go to like Walmart, it's behind the counter. You have to show your driver's license to get it. And you can only get, I don't even know if you can get six. At the time, I think you could buy six. But for some reason, they arrested this lady and she had gone to Walmart. And I lived in Florida, so Publix and, um, you know, Walgreens, whatever. She said different bags of of the same thing. And, Mm -hmm. And it's some brand where it had the antihistamine in it. And that's obviously, I mean, nobody does that unless you're about to go give it to somebody who's going to cook up some meth. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to, flip, we brought her to the station and we were trying to flip her and trying to flip her. And she, even though she seemed high on something, she was doing a really good job of not telling us who she was going to take that to. But as she, she would just tell us all these stupid stories. And one of them was that her friend who was on, who was a crack whore. And I, that's what she <laughs> said, who's a crack whore. And, you know, if it wasn't for meth, she'd still be on crack. And I was like, hold on a second. You mean meth is a good thing? And she said, well, yeah, because if it wasn't for the meth, she'd still be on crack. I'm like, okay. Oh, All right. Yeah. It, this is your brain meth, on drugs. Crack does. Yeah. Crack does bad things to people, but meth really does bad things to people. So anybody, wow. anytime you've, if you ever encounter, encounter anyone using meth, my advice is to walk the other way. Wow. Wow. You, um, <laughs> let me, what's your most embarrassing moment on the job? Well, which one? Let's see. Um, oh, that's right. You actually had a couple. So, okay. Yeah. Taco Bell. Um, this <laughs> nothing happens. Nothing good happens with the beginning of Taco nothing Bell. Good. Actually, I love, I love Taco Bell. No. It's my favorite place to go. <laughs> I do. The double decker taco is so good. Um, uh, the, uh, somebody was in the Taco Bell drive through and passed away in their car. Let that just be a message to you about <laughs> eating too much Taco Bell. And I got called in because the car was still on the drive through at Taco Bell. And all I needed to do was move it forward to a parking spot so somebody could come get it later. So me being still good enough of a rookie to not know or think of not think about or remember what happens to bodily functions or 
sphincters when you die <laughs> is that I sat in the driver's seat instead of instead of pushing the car, which was like a little it was like a little Saturn something or other. I could have just put it in drive and pushed it good enough. It whatever. Nope. I sat in the driver's seat where the person had died. And what I quickly learned is that all bodily fluids come out when the person dies in the seat that they were sitting in. So I had to quickly jump out of that car, move it to the parking spot in the right way, and then call my sergeant and tell him that I needed to go change my clothes because I had just sat in... I don't know what. All it kinds of bodily fluids. I bet. I don't know it if I would have been able to move the car. It may have, you know what? I'm done. Somebody else is going to have to move this car. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> oh, awful. man. Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. That is, that's crazy. And it's one of those, like, do I really have to say something? And I'm pretty sure after that, I kept extra, at least pants in my trunk. So that, because at my agency, we, we kept our cars with us. They stayed, they went to our house mm-hmm. um, or it doesn't matter. Keep a bag. Even if you're an agency where you just bring your bag and you put it, you know, check out a patrol car for the day, put extra pants and underwear and your bag and be ready. Cause it will, something will happen to you. That, <sighs> the other one was when I, this one wasn't embarrassing, but when you go into a place where somebody has been dead for a long time and the smell is like nothing else you could ever describe. And then it like, gets on you. Like I, I was there for hours because I had to wait for the ME to come, natural causes. And then they wanted me to help carry the, they wanted me to help move this person that had been there for two weeks. Yeah. If you know anything about bodies when they're there for too long, they don't stay together. And I'm like, I, there's no way. No, you do not pay. I mean, even now, like, no, you do not pay me enough money for this. And I'd be happy to, I mean, I will go help somebody in a fight or go pull out my gun if I have to, but I don't want to move a dead body. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think anybody really gross. does. I had to change my clothes after that. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's some of the things that I remember that, you know, you do go in places sometimes and when you leave that the smell just stays mm-hmm. with you. And then some of the, mm-hmm. you know, not to get too gross, but some of the nastier houses where, you know, there's bugs everywhere and then you just feel like they're all, oh, yeah. all over you forever. And yeah, it's, it's, it's. All officers should get a raise just based on those incidents like that. I know. It's terrible. I remember walking out of a house like that one time where there's just stuff everywhere. And my narcotics, the other female was on narcotics with me for a while. Um, we were co- a lot of, we weren't even in this house that long, but our bottom of our legs were covered in fleas. Ew. And, oh, it's just, it was, and then somebody lives in that. Oh, mm. yeah. Yeah. So, so most of your undercover experience was as a just doing buys, day buys. You weren't like one of these deep cover folks that, you know, you're no. playing a part and selling and or, you know, all that kind of stuff in a game. Yeah. And and no, and because we didn't have the we, our unit. I mean, at one point I was the only investigate. I was the only person on this on the narcotics unit because people had transferred out or they went to the feds or I mean, our most was we had four. I can't remember if we ever had five. And mm-hmm. two sergeants and a lieutenant. So um, we just didn't have the, the infrastructure internally for that. And and I didn't want to. I really didn't want to. You know, I said quickly, I don't think it took me very long, like I said, to start to realize what the job does to you. And I think that those jobs even more disassoci- disassociate you from the reality that you need to hold on to. And I, I didn't want to. Um, and also... Our county was I-75 runs north-south in Florida, so it's a major drug thoroughfare. Mm-hmm. And we had plenty of just getting big stuff and tossing it to whoever we need to toss it to. And, you know, FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the state version, or, you know, the feds in some way. Um, 
And so, yeah, for many reasons, no, we did not do the deep dive stuff. But that being said, that did that does not mean that you didn't have some pretty scary situations in just your mm. regular little buys. Tell me about a couple of times mm-hmm. or some times that you were that were just really scary when you're making a buy or just doing your normal undercover work. You know, times when the times that would, um, well, like I said, you, you're a cop, you always have to have it in your mind that something could happen. And um, whether that's on patrol or, um, you know, whatever. But you go in and you, and you can't, you go into somebody's house to buy and you just don't know everything that's going to be in there, which is a lot of risk in that. And then, and, you know, and you got to do it three times. Like I said earlier, we had to do three buys to get a search warrant. And then in, so I mean, University of Florida is in Gainesville. It's just Gainesville's in Alachua County. I worked for the Alachua County Sheriff's Office. So Gainesville is a big town, but as soon as you get outside of all that college stuff, it's a very rural. There are a lot of very rural parts of the county. And, you know, just whether it's in narcotics or when I was in patrol, sometimes you roll up on something and you think, oh gosh, if this goes bad, I'm in trouble. Like my closest person to me, you know, at best is 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And if I start getting in a fight, I mean, 30 minutes is not doable and so, right. or, or shot or whatever, or you pull up on a house. I remember pulling up to a mobile home one time and we just, it was on this dirt road. It's sort of what they call like the county line road. So you're way out and you pull up to this mobile home. We pulled up this mobile home and I just remember thinking, and, and everybody who's been a cop has at that moment where you think, oh, that like something like the spiny tingly senses is the hairs on your arm stand up and you think, I remember one time backing up and saying, I need backup. I'm going to sit right here. I'm not going in until I get backup because it's something. And it turned out to be okay, but you just never know, especially if it's a domestic violence situation. I am not rolling up on that or a mentally impaired person. I am not rolling up on that. I almost got in a really bad situation one time with a mentally impaired person because I pulled right up and the person saw me and she locked herself in the bathroom. The next week, you know, she's shoving blood covered tissues under the door. And then later I was like, well, I shouldn't have pulled up that way. She saw me. And it's just, you know, if coulda, shoulda, woulda, if this and that kind of things. But, um, one time I was buying powder, you know, cocaine, powder cocaine and, and trying to get over an ounce so that I could you know, increase the penalty. And cause then they have a higher, um, chance of flipping and giving you who they're buying it from. Mm-hmm. So I was buying powder cocaine and uh, over an ounce and the guy turns around and like, get it for me. And there's a handgun in the back of his pants and everything we'd known about this guy to that point was he was not like that. Long story short, that guy ended up figuring out who I was, my real name, my oh, address, wow. and the snitch that we had used to get to him called me one day and said, he knows who you are. He actually drove out to your house. It was going to knock on your door, but he chickened out. So I immediately called my sergeant. He was at the community college in Gainesville. We figured out, we called the community college, got his school schedule, and we were standing there. And I, like, I'm 5'5". Five, five. The guys that I worked with at the time, my sergeant, Sergeant Redmond, he was, he used to play football. He was, I mean, I don't know, 6'4", six, 6'5", six, big O. He was with me. He was probably 350 and six foot something. So they, <laughs> and then me, and I was standing in between them. And I, this guy comes out and sees us and he just hangs his head and comes with us. And so that one was interesting. Um, but another one was where I was buying Oxycontin. And, you know, it's a, Oxycontin is a time release that it's like a dollar and milligram. So you got an 80 milligram pill and it's or whatever milligram, I don't know, 80 something and you pay 80 bucks or I think it might have been 160 per pill. I can't remember. So it was, you know, they could make a lot of money off of an Oxycontin uh-huh. pill. Yeah. 
And there was a guy who had robbed pharmacies at gunpoint to get the Oxycontin in Gainesville. And he was out on two charges of armed robbery for Oxycontin. And this girl that I was buying from, we had kind of suspected that maybe she was getting it from him, but we didn't think he had any because he was out on two charges. He was out on bond. And she, I'm on my way to go buy from her and I call her and she's, I said, I'm on my way. And she starts acting funny and she's not talking to me the same way. And I'm like, well, what's going on? Everything's, you know, you can't ask too many questions because then, then the cop comes out or what's going on or whatever. And then I heard somebody, who is that? And then I can't remember the guy's name. But she ended up saying like, oh, so-and-so is here. And just something about it. And I called my, okay. And then I called my sergeant. I said, Sarge, something's going on. I didn't know he was going to be there. She didn't tell us that he was going to be there. And we actually called it off and didn't go um, because he would rob pharmacies at gunpoint. I mean, yeah, uh, just safety reasons. Definitely. You just didn't want to put, you know, there wasn't a reason yeah, to that one put yourself like, in that, that was risk. The only time I literally said the only one and only time I said, I don't want to do this because I'm, I was, do, I was going to go do the undercover buy. Yeah. Go on another mobile home. I mean, the shotgun blast would blow me and the wall out. Yeah. And you would have been by yourself in that situation. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. we would have had support around, you know, for the go in and there's always, like you say, there's always some for them to listen. So in case it goes bad, they can come in and get me, but you can't get there fast enough. If somebody's <laughs> shooting me with a shotgun. <laughs> That's so. true. That's true. Well, I'm glad you called it off. I'm glad you're here today. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. My dad, my dad doesn't know that story. If he were to ever listen to this, he, he would probably be happy too. Well, well, you have to make sure that you you have your dad listen. Don't know about your kids. Not yet, but make sure and your no, dad no, listens. He does. He'll, he always, I always tell him when the, um, the last one that came out, he's like, honey, you do a pretty good job. I'm like, thanks dad. <laughs> you seem surprised that I did a good job, dad. Oh, I know. Wow, you shouldn't be so surprised. Honey, you're really good at this. Like, geez, oh, dad, man. I didn't oh, just man. start my business yesterday. <laughs> and we'll get to that too. I want to talk about that. But first, tell me what was your proudest moment on the job? Um, for sure. Making SWAT team. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny cause in hindsight, it was like, it was the best and the worst thing. Um, mm-hmm. because I ended up leaving law enforcement because of it. Um, and I'm a firm believer that life leads you where you need to go. And while that was very hard at the time, I knew that there's always, there's always opportunities somewhere it is just, it's just really hard to go from law enforcement to not law enforcement, mm-hmm. especially when your intention is to be in law enforcement for, you know, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life and retire. And then I decided that was not what I was going to do. And then I like, I had no, no idea what to do with myself. Um, but trying out for SWAT team, when I had people telling me you shouldn't do this, what are you thinking? And I'm like, great th- for your unsolicited opinion. I'm going to do it anyway. And then making the team, and, and then training. I mean, I, I loved the training and competing on the two SWAT roundup teams. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I that was uh, in my next life. I would like to be a professional athlete and an artist and a musician all at the same time. <laughs> um, but getting to train for SWAT roundup was some of the best days of my life. Um, and I really did enjoy the, the guys I was training with. Um, so yeah, those, I would say that's for sure. And, you know, and I worked really hard for that. I mean, I I think anybody can be proud of anything that they, when they, when you put a lot of work into it, even if it doesn't turn out the way you might want it to, but I'm so proud of myself. I, I worked really hard for that and it was a great experience, certainly for who I am still today. Yeah. You, you still did the work and you accomplished your goals. So Mm -hmm. there's nothing not to be Mm -hmm. proud of there. That's something to be very proud of. Um, but I want to parlay that into 
the next thing, which is, you know, kind of related to that. What was your worst day on the job? Oh, it was the day I found out that my, because of my SWAT team commander, my lieutenant on narcotics unit, it was because of him, my team was calling me. So just to lay the foundation. So I had done another buy three times in another mobile home way out in the country in Alachua County. And this guy I did, I don't remember. It wasn't a $20 crack rock. Like I'm not going to go in somebody's house and do that, be at risk of that. You know, you elevate the risk when you go inside and you increase the number of unknowns. I don't do that for $20 crack rock. That had Mm -hmm. to have been, I don't remember what it was for, but it had to have been for, you know, powder cocaine or, you know, much more crack or, I don't think it was pills or anything like that, but don't remember whatever it was. We were, it was for more than just a $20 crack rock and we wanted to be able to get a search warrant and we did. And so I did the undercover buys. I wrote up the search warrant with the sworn affidavit that you take to the state attorney's office. They approve it. Then they take it to the judge. The judge signs off on it. And then we used our SWAT team to execute the search warrant. Part of the reason we always use a search uh, SWAT team for that. But part of the reason was in this particular instance, the guy had a rifle with the lean up in the corner within arm's reach of him every time I bought from him. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I was you know, certainly heightened risk. So I get, you know, I did the undercover buys. I got the search warrant. It got approved by a judge, you know, all legit. We, of course, I was driving the bread van. I didn't get to be on the entry team, whatever. <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, and this was probably that search warrant when we executed, it was maybe a couple of weeks after I'd finally gone to my lieutenant and said, Hey, you know, I just, I just want equal treatment. And that didn't go. He kept saying, don't make trouble for yourself where there's not any. And I, I don't even know what you mean by that. It turns out what he meant was you're making it worse for yourself by asking for equal treatment. Because two weeks later after the search warrant, we worked with the state attorney's office a lot. They had invited us to one of their parties, a bunch of attorneys in the room. Well, just, you know, and staff and everybody was at this party. Well, one of the guys in the narcotics unit, we had a uniform side side of it. One of the guys from the uniform side of the narcotics unit um, said, hey, he told me what happened. That on the way to the search warrant, because he was a big dude, like former Marine, his neck's like this big around. <laughs> and um, he told me that on the way to the search warrant that I had gotten, that I did the dangerous buys for that they were all calling me a snitch. The guys that were in the, the ballistic vehicle, the, the entry team were calling me a snitch behind my back. And I literally had to leave the party before anybody could see me crying so hard. I almost couldn't drive. I remember wow. calling my mom being so upset. It fi- that's when it finally hit me that nothing I did was ever going to matter that, you know, I had already competed in two SWAT roundups with them. I and mean, when we had placed in top SWAT teams in the, in the world and yeah. I realized that none of that mattered to them or it didn't matter to the people who were making the decisions about the team. And that was crushing, even though I already knew it was hard. I already knew the ones that really didn't, I don't want to say like me, but didn't want me there. Um, that was really hard. And I think it was the next week. And this was after the captain had already asked me, do you want, is there anything you want to talk about the next week? That was a Saturday night. I walked into the captain's office at the beginning of the week and said, I want off SWAT team and narcotics today and I want day shift. Well, I was still only four and a half years into the job. I'm not (laughs) supposed to be able to ask for a prime day shift. And he said, okay, you can have it. You start next week. Wow. And I got day shift and I finished up by that time. I knew I was going to law school. Um, I didn't know where yet, but I was, I think I already was about to take the LSAT, which is the test you have to take to get into law school. I'd already told them I was studying for the LSAT and that was my intention. 
because um, I was taking a class at night, which is another reason they wanted to push me out. They're like, see, she's not going to be here anyway. It doesn't matter. Shouldn't treat people like that. Right. Um, but that was still, no matter what, it, it was it was crushing. Wow. Well, when we come back, we want to talk about that, what that did to you mentally and how that, you know, transitioned you into your next role and into what you're doing today. Um, but what I want to do now is just take a little time to talk about one of our great sponsors, and that is... Eric Buchanan and Associates. And, you know, whether I like to say whether you're a first responder, a last responder or no responder, if you've been paying for uh, disability insurance and, you know, it's not uncommon for first responders to have disability insurance, you know, doctors, lawyers, everybody can purchase disability insurance. And the reason you purchase it is if you find yourself in a situation where you can't do your job anymore because you've been disabled, you've been injured, something is preventing you from earning the living that you were earning before, then you need to call Eric Buchanan and Associates because oftentimes those insurance companies, even though you've been paying those claims, they look for every reason they can to deny those claims. And, you know, they got tons of lawyers like Bridget trying to deny claims over here. So you need to get another (laughs) attorney (laughs) like Eric Buchanan to be on your side. And he is the man to go to. Again, it's Eric Buchanan and Associates. His number is 877-634-2506. And that's anywhere in the country. You can reach out to him. He can, you know, review your your case and, you know, tell you tell you some some things as far as what he can do for you, how he can help you. 877-634-2506 or just look for him online at BuchananDisability.com. That's BuchananDisability.com. Eric Buchanan and Associates. He's a good dude and he'll take care of you. So back to Miss Bridget, you know, another attorney, you know, we always talk about attorneys, how we don't like attorneys, but Eric's a good guy. Mm-hmm. And I can tell Bridget, you're a good gal as well. So how, you know, we were, we were talking about how crushing it was, you know, to find out essentially your best, best day on the job and your worst day on the job were all kind of related. And, and you talked about you just just crying so much that you, you know, it was tough to drive. But let's talk more about what that did to you mentally and how that propelled you into what you're doing now. Yeah. It, it, so I say, you know, and I said I had already applied for the LSAT, you know, and I can't remember if that's accurate because at that point, up until that point, I thought, no way, I'm still going to do this. I'm going to fight the fight. I'm going to, I'm not going to quit. Even that's what they want me to do. I'm just not going to do it. And, and I maybe thought about, okay, maybe I'll just switch to detectives. Like maybe if I just get out of the narcotics unit and I'm not around all those guys all the time, it would get better. But it was after that party that I really, you know, that's what it just really slapped you in the face, ran you over with the SWAT truck saying, no, my gosh, it doesn't matter. And what was really hard about that and the lessons I've learned many years later, which is what, why I'm such an advocate for you have to do the work to have to balance your life out outside of law enforcement so that when the inevitable trauma critical incident you know really awful incident at work happens it's not you don't have all your eggs in one basket i had all my eggs in one basket i was going to be in law enforcement and i was going to do it for the rest of my career and i was doing i mean i don't even remember who i hung i had maybe a couple friends outside of law enforcement but Everybody else, I just wanted to be around them all the time. And and I think that's really easy to do when you first start is you just want to be around and it's cool and you want them to respect you and you want them to think of you the next time they recommend somebody for the next position that opens and you want to be there and you want to miss out on anything. And, and so what was really hard is that I did have all of my identity tied up in 
who the fact that I was on SWAT team and undercover narcotics. And the tricky part is because I was under undercover narcotics, I didn't really tell people what I did for a living. And yet, if you knew me, if you really knew me, you you knew that's what I did. You knew I was at the sheriff's office, undercover narcotics on SWAT team. And so, you know, that became like an identifier for me as, oh, Bridget's all these amazing things. And so then it becomes, well, who am I if I'm not those things? What will people think of me if I'm not those things? Right. And that was really hard. And so then I remember thinking like, well, my degree's in horticulture. Do I want to go into that? No. Um, I, didn't, I, I didn't know what to do. And then finally, my, when my dad was sitting around complaining about attorneys one night. <laughs> and they looked at me and said, oh, you should be an attorney. I said, dad, did you hear yourself? Like you just went on and on for an hour about how awful attorneys are. And then you just told me that I should go to law school. He's like, yeah, but you won't be like that. <laughs> and he's right. I'm not like that. Um, and so literally I went, I, I decided to leave because I, I didn't know how to do the job. And this also could have been age or if I could have done anything to stick with the job, but then just putting a lot of time and effort into things outside of it. So I was getting fulfillment and pleasure and in other ways that I wanted to get off of mom and fulfillment, my feelings of success from being successful on SWAT team, doing, wanting my lieutenant and narcotics to think I was doing a good job and stop writing me up. I mean, and that wasn't happening. And so I said, well, that's just happening. So I'm going to go do something else. And yeah. um, now that I'm 47 and not 27, I realized sometimes you just got to give it some time. And like I said earlier, I don't regret what I did because now I can help law enforcement in a different way. So in spite of all those experiences, I knew, like I said earlier, when I, when I left law enforcement, I knew I wanted to give back. And because I knew I was going to law school, that there could be a way for me to do that. Um, whether it was working within a department as an attorney to do stuff, but that didn't happen. I moved to Texas from Florida right after I finished law school for my now husband and got a job. And I ended up working in civil litigation doing asbestos. So for 13 years, I kept trying to get out of it because I didn't like, I don't like litigation. Um, but I didn't specifically, I don't like plaintiff's lawyer ego litigation. And gotcha. so um, I cared about my clients. Unfortunately, all my clients died um, because you don't survive mesothelioma when you've been gotten it from us. You get mesothelioma from asbestos. If you get meso, you die. Um, so all my clients died. Um, which is interesting if you think about where you go from a, a job in law enforcement that can be emotionally taxing to a, a job as an attorney that is emotionally taxing because you you do end up trying to work real hard for these people as fast as you can to get their lawsuit filed and get their deposition done and do it all before they die and then they die and then you just you know and then the loved ones and then they get a bunch of money and then the family does stupid stuff because there's money involved and it's just disappointing and human so a lot of the same pieces as mm-hmm. law enforcement. Um, but eventually in the law firm world and dealing with, I just, I don't care about your ego and, and, you know, I do a lot of work to not let my ego drive who I am. And I, so when I'm around people who are so driven by, I'm so awesome, how much can I pat my back every day? Um, I don't think that's a healthy way to live. So, and I think there's cops who are like that too, but, um, that's not exclusive to attorneys. So finally, about three years ago, I was like, this is it. Apparently the heavens are not going to drop down the perfect job for me. So I'm going to just make it myself. And it's taken me, it took me a while to evolve that. Like I knew I wanted to do something to help cops that turned into wellness. I knew I could do something as an attorney. Um, I worked very hard for that. I'm I'm licensed to practice in four States. I've taken four bar exams in four different States and passed them all the first time, which I, I mean, knock on, never say never, but I'm knocking on wood. I am not taking another bar exam. Wow. Um, 
But what that means is that I have practiced across the country. I, when I was doing asbestos cases, I had clients that were across the country. We would have a local counsel. So if I live in Texas, but I want to file a case in Illinois, we would have local counsel in Illinois to help us file it there. So I know attorneys across the country or have a network of attorneys that can help me find whoever I need to get to. And what I love about what I'm doing now is that I can eat. Sometimes my role is helping you find an attorney where you are, because mm-hmm. especially if you're in a small community, because the smaller the community, the less people might want to get involved if you're going after your department. Um, Cause those are the things that I help with the most are internal issues. Kind of like what I faced harassment, discrimination, retaliation. Um, and then you and I were talking about earlier, the Brady Giglio issue uh, which also can be an internal issue if used the wrong way, um, if used as a tool to get rid of someone. Um, and so it, it has evolved into me. I make a living being an attorney, but my passion is helping cops find happiness through wellness training. And so I have those two things. But that's a very long way of answering your question. <laughs> well, it was. But I mean, as I said at the beginning, you, you're doing a lot of great things. So as we wrap this up, tell people, mm-hmm. you know, it, if they want to find out more about you or or tell them who should be seeking you out, because I know you, you talked about discrimination and things like that. So just, you know, this is your time to give an abbreviated commercial and just tell people who, you know, if you're experiencing this, this and this and you're in these states, if, if that matters, give me a call. Let me talk. You know, I can I can help you. Or if you want some uh, wellness coaching or training, you know, and uh, what you tell my listeners what you can do to help them and who should be calling you. Yeah. Well, the, the easy, I feel like the quickest answer is on the wellness side, the course that I've, I have created, it's all online. You can do it online. Um, and I created it. It's a peer reviewed course, meaning I had a group of cops who took the course and helped give feedback and create. And I said, that's what I think I need to do. And then they gave feedback on that. So it's a cop peer reviewed course, I do think it works for all first responders, but it is the language I use because that's the world I come from is law enforcement. Um, and the reason why it was two things that I heard the most. One was, I don't know what wellness means for me. And number two, I don't know how to find the time for it. And we all feel that about any, I want to learn piano. I don't have time. I want to learn Spanish. I don't have time. I want to start doing something to take better care of myself. I don't have time. And so I created this course with peer reviewed feedback um, to help you figure out what your wellness means so that once you finish the course, it, you have decided what you want your wellness to be. It's not me delivering a canned product. And then by the time you finish the course, you've already carved out time for that. So you just have to keep doing the things. Um, and I think that's, you can find that online. You go to my website, you can find it. it's the only course you see on protective wellness website. Okay. Um, so I was going to say, what's then, the way you haven't talked about the website. So what's the website? Yeah. So my, my website for that is myprotectivewellness.com and okay. you go on there and you can find the course. If you're interested in what your wellness level is, there's a quiz on there you can take. Um, and it's designed to show you there's, there's four different aspects of wellness as, as I define it. And it's designed to show you what, Maybe you're doing a really good job of working out, but maybe you're not doing any of these other three things, but all four of those things integrate in a very important way so that you can avoid some of the, the stuff that I, I like my, my outcome of law enforcement so that you can, I want you to stay in the job. I want you to be healthy to stay in the job. This world, your community, your city, your town needs you to stay in the job and but do it in the right healthy way. So that taking care of yourself and carving out time to do that. And then on the legal side, 
it's really from doing this. I want to help people leave with stuff. And then they hear me tell my story. And I've had a lot of women reach out to me for having problems in their department, similar to what I experienced. And so it's harassment, discrimination, um, sometimes explicit. I mean, sometimes people say just the dumbest things and then they repeat it in front of people. I mean, I used to say that they call it dope for a reason, because if you use it or sell it, you're just that dumb. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, and no, and, and I'm not, no, just, and that has no, like if you, I just want to say this, so law enforcement officers face the struggles that they face. And sometimes that results in an addiction. I am not saying that that person is a dope. I'm saying that's a mental health issue and it's, it's manifesting as a drug issue. So I'm not calling anybody out there that has a drug addiction, a dope. I'm talking about the people that sold me crack rock because they're dopes. Anyway. (laughs) Um, so the main things I help with are things like, what do you do? And I don't have to be licensed in your state to help you know what to do. And I put together, I basically have packages of things that I can help with. Do you need me to find a lawyer for you? I can help you with that. Do you want me to help you with your EEOC claim, which is the kind of the first step if you have a sexual harassment or discrimination case? You got to file the EEOC claim first. Um, you know, depending on how that goes, I can represent you in, in pieces of it because I don't need to be licensed in your state. That's a federal process, things like that. And the big one recently is this Brady Giglio issue where they tried to say that this officer was untruthful and used that to put her on a Brady Giglio list and then fired. And then the chief used that as an excuse to fire her, which was really just his final reason and a long list of things, including some very explicitly stupid things to get rid of her. And you just can't do that. Now I'm not saying that fight would be easy or that that it will be a quick battle. And at some point you just have to decide how much you want to put up with. And I can tell you from my experience that I wish I'd had somebody like me telling me, stop putting up with this. Um, You want all cops know you don't understand what it's like if you've never lived it. And I know because I've lived it and I did suffer through it. And so therefore I can help you a lot of times even be, sometimes I'm the bridge between the attorney who's not a cop and never has been and the cop who needs. So I'm the one that helps like speak the language between the two. Gotcha. Um, I've been hired to be co-counsel on a case just to help on projects, just because the person I talked to trusts my experience, but I don't want to be licensed in their state. And so I still help in different ways. So that's not really short, but it's basically like help with in, in pieces and if you live in Texas, I can help you with the whole thing. But a lot of times you don't really need me to. And that's where I, I like to be the good lawyer in the sense that um, I, you don't need to pay me for all this stuff or to f- represent you or do this or that. You can just pay me for little pieces, which is more affordable for you. And you feel better because you're still getting a lawyer to give you advice to help you along the way. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that is a, that is a lot. Of, and you do some some really cool things. So, again, my guest today is Bridget Truxillo. That's it, right? Yeah. All right. Good job. <laughs> so former uh, police or sheriff's deputy, former sheriff's deputy turned um, wellness counselor, wellness coach turned um, lawyer, attorney. And she does both of those things to help better her community, better the officers around us and, um, you know, help them live better lives for themselves. And my next to last question for you is knowing what you know now, would you do it all over again? Yes, I would. Um, I think that the job of law enforcement is a noble and firefighters and EMTs. It's a noble profession. You work in a field where you run towards danger when everybody else runs away. And that it gives me chills in the back of my head. Every time I say it, I think that anybody who's choosing that makes you 
you know, kudos to you and your community is lucky to have you. And I was a piece of that. And I'm very proud of that. And um, even though it was very hard, I think that that saying it's, it's hard to say it when it's hard to accept it when you're in it, but it's that the hardest things turn out to be some of the best things. And so because that was hard for me at the time, I feel like I'm much better equipped or I can put it this way. I feel like at 47 years old, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing with my, with my professional life. Um, Great. I do believe strongly in having a lot of different, um, putting a lot of energy into being a mom and being a wife and being a friend. And I put energy into those things. It's, I don't put all my happiness, all my happiness is not dependent upon my job. Um, and professionally, like this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be finding ways to help the people that are listening to this podcast. So if you can think of anything that I can help you with, don't hesitate to reach out. Thank you so much, Bridget. And I think that's a very important point for all first responders. The job is what you do and it's not who you are. And too many times mm-hmm. it becomes who we mm-hmm. are and that can become a problem. Yeah. So thank you yeah. all for listening today. Again, my Brit, my guest today is Bridget Trixillo. And don't forget to subscribe, share and, um, you know, give us a great rating wherever you're listening. That really helps us and, you know, spread the word so that we can continue to grow this podcast and help not only other first responders, but help the community understand what they go through and how we can all work better together. If you have any questions or suggestions, be sure to shoot me an email, 91what.podcast at gmail.com. Again, that's 91what.podcast at gmail.com. And again, I thank you for your listening and I thank you for your support. And until next time, have a blessed day. Thanks for listening to 91 What? We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have comments or suggestions, please email us at 91what.podcast at gmail.com. And thanks to Carlos Bail Bonding and Eric Buchanan and Associates for making this episode possible.